Christmas will be here before you know it. So now is the time to prepare your heart with a timeless devotional written by Dr. David Jeremiah called Season of Joy. Enter the Christmas season with restored hope, resounding joy, reassuring peace, and renewed faith. This inspirational book is yours for a gift of any amount in support of Turning Point. And for a gift of $100 or more, you'll receive a four-pack to share the season of joy with others. Learn more at davidjeremiah.ca. That's davidjeremiah.ca. Is it humanly possible to really forgive and forget? To forgive someone for a grievous offense and literally put it out of your mind. Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah breaks down what that concept of forgive and forget means for the believer. You might be surprised, even relieved by his answer. To introduce the conclusion of his message, Love's Power Over Anger, here's David. And thank you for joining us today for the beginning of a new week and the completion of a message we started on Friday called Love's Power Over Anger. As you probably know, we now live in an angry world. Anger manifests itself every day in your community and mine, on the radio, on television, in the movies. Anger is ever-present. But the Bible tells us there's a way we can deal with it, and we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 13 in just a moment and pick up on what we started on Friday as we complete our discussion of love's power over anger. Tomorrow and Wednesday, we'll be talking about resentment and uh, Thursday, negative attitudes and Friday, discouragement. We're really dealing with some visceral areas in our lives and that we're finding out that God has something to say about all of them and that love, what does the Bible say? Love covers a multitude of sins. And uh, we all know what that means. Hey, let me tell you before we get into the message that um, we have a beautiful resource for you uh, during this month. It's called The Unchanging Promises of God. It's a calendar, a 14-month calendar that begins in November of this year and goes through all of 2024. It includes all of the holidays and all of the months, those 14 months, and it gives you a chance to get a head start on the new year, putting all of your events in the calendar. We moved the release of this calendar up to September for that very reason. You will get it in plenty of time, and it's yours for a gift when you ask for it during the month of September. Once again, it's a beautiful, beautiful color calendar. You'll be happy and proud to hang it on your wall. I hope you get your copy this month. Right now, this is part two of Love's Power Over Anger. Now, by virtue of the fact that we're moving one word at a time through 1 Corinthians 13, we're doing kind of a strange topical exposition. And I don't mean to take you all over the scripture to fulfill the purpose of this message, but we are going to look at a number of passages and talk about a number of things. First of all, if we are going to recover the control of our disposition, If we're going to learn how to live in the community of the local church and even in the more intimate community of the Christian home and be faithful to God in the way we function, we have got to learn, first of all, some principles for dealing with our disposition. And I'd like to suggest four or five. Number one, we need to recover the lost art of listening. Mark Lee, who has written a number of books on the Christian marriage 
said that reasons that marriages fail are basically due to communication. The problems of a failing marriage may be related to unsatisfactory communication, he wrote. Failure in interpersonal communication ranks high on the list of complaints in faulty marriages. Some analysts contend that this failure is the primary cause for unhappiness among family members. It's unfortunate that when we think about communication, we only think of the active aspect of communication, which is talking. But we ought to also consider the important application of communication, which is listening. Experts tell us that it is not easy to teach people to listen, but listening is a skill that can be learned. Did you know that in the day, approximately 9% of your time will be spent writing, 16% of your time will be spent reading, 30% of your time will be spent speaking, but 45% of your time will be spent listening? Isn't it interesting that that which we do with our time more than any other activity has never been the result of a training seminar? I have never seen anyone get an award for being a good listener. And yet, anatomically speaking, we are to be twice as good a listeners as we are speakers, for God gave us one mouth and two ears. Unfortunately, for most Christians that I know, they have a mouth that is overworked and two ears that are in semi-retirement. Someone has said that if we're to be good listeners, we have to be motivated, first of all. We must really want to hear what is being said. We must voluntarily decide that we will listen. We must say within ourselves, I will listen to you. We must have purpose. I deeply desire to understand you through your words. We must learn how to listen critically. I will evaluate your words carefully in love. And we must listen cooperatively. I will provide the feedback you need in order to communicate. One of the reasons why tempers are expressed in personal relationships is because we respond and explode to what we think we heard, but what was never said. I would like to encourage you to learn how to be a good listener. And if you do that, you will discover that your temper gets back into focus. I remember reading about Senator Sam Irvin, who is dead now, but he was very much a part of the Watergate hearings many years ago. And Senator Irvin suggested that everyone should take notice of what he calls Irvin's Law. That is, in an exchange of words, there are actually three meanings. First, what the speaker thinks he said. Secondly, what the listener thinks he heard. And thirdly, what the actual words meant, according to the dictionary. <laughs> well, he's right. But listening is a very vital part of the control of one's disposition. It seems to me that all of us need to practice learning how to listen so that we actually hear what is said. Then I would like to suggest to you that as you recover the lost art of listening, that secondly, you research your heart and identify the root of your anger. You know, the Bible has some very powerful things to say about anger. 
Over and over again, the scripture warns against allowing yourself the luxury of being angry. And every evil temper is the result of some hidden anger in the heart of the person who speaks. Sometimes we think that a temper is simply a momentary outburst that is not related to anything else in the person's life. But anger is the root of evil disposition. And when a person has an an evil disposition, when they're always losing their temper, when they are easily provoked or when they are set off and on edge, usually it is the result of something down deep inside that is underground, that is underneath the surface. And uh, though you might not even touch that with what you say, that is anger that is ready to explode. Henry Drummond spoke about temper on another occasion in his address, The Greatest Thing in the World. And he described it like this. He said, it is the occasional bubble that escapes to the surface and betrays some rottenness underneath. A sample of the most hidden products of the soul dropped involuntarily when one is off guard. In a word, the lightning form of a hundred hideous and unchristian sins. For want of patience, for want of kindness, for want of generosity, for want of courtesy, for want of unselfishness, all of these instantaneously are symbolized in the one flash of anger we call temper. What Drummond was saying was that temper is not the problem. Temper is the symptom of the problem that lies down under the surface. If you are always losing your temper, the probability is that you're a very angry person. And you need to ask God to give you the courage to reflect in your own life upon the nature and the source of your anger. Here are some passages that speak about an angry soul. We know the one in Ephesians chapter 4, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. List the others and read them when you get a chance. Proverbs 29, 11. A fool always loses his temper, but a wise man holds it back. Proverbs 14, 29. He who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. Proverbs 15, 18. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger pacify contention. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for him than for a fool. Proverbs 29.20. Proverbs 17.14, the beginning of strife is like the letting of water, so abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. James 1.19-20, this you know, my beloved brethren, Let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Down under the surface of a quick-tempered man is the root of bitterness and anger. Ask yourself, why am I so angry? I could tell you stories of people that I have counseled with over the years who have been quick-tempered in their marital relationship, 
And when we sit down to talk, it has nothing whatsoever to do with that particular relationship. But back in the years past, something happened that created a serious, angry spirit. They never dealt with the problem. They let that anger stay there dormant. And because the outbursts of temper don't seem to be related to the problem of anger in the past, they never draw the straight line between the bad disposition and the old hurt. And only as you bring them to understand that can they be set free from the slavery of an evil temper. And so I would encourage you not only to recover the lost art of listening and be sure you're hearing what is being said, but to go back and research your heart and identify the root of your anger. Let me give you a third principle. Principle number three. Refuse to seek revenge. Irritation in the heart of the believer is always an invitation to the devil to stand by. And if you're out there seeking revenge, you have just opened your whole spirit and your whole heart so that Satan can walk in with all the cohorts of his demons and take control of your life. A person who seeks revenge has opened himself up to demonic activity in his life. And the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 17 through 21, teaches us what we're to do when we are tempted to revenge. And I want you to turn there in your Bibles. Recompense to no man, evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The Bible teaches that if we seek revenge, we are violating the principles of God, but we are also setting ourselves up for Satan's control of our life. I always think of the passage that speaks of Jesus and when he was under pressure. The passage says, when he was reviled, and what's the rest of it? He reviled not again. When he was under attack, he did not respond. He did not uh, seek to get even. He learned how to hold himself under control by the Spirit of God. And because of that, he serves as an example for all of us. These three things that I have shared with you could stand some more support, but I want to mention in a little more detail the last one. For it seems to me that at the root of the bitter, angry spirits in the hearts of the people that I have met is an unwillingness to forgive. And I would like to suggest to you, number four, that if you're to deal with an evil disposition and a bad temper, you need to resolve to forgive the one who has injured you. Back behind that explosive nature is the hurt that you never dealt with, the injury that you never forgave, the person who did something to you that was unforgivable, and so you didn't forgive them. I read the book by Lewis Smedes called Forgive and Forget. 
In my estimation, it is the most sane treatment of forgiveness I have ever read. He does away with some of the old adages that have grown up within the Christian church that you should always understand that when you forgive somebody, if you don't forget what they did, you haven't forgiven them. And he blows that apart with the canon of the scriptures to remind us that forgiving and forgetting are not always simultaneous. There is a difference, a vast difference between deciding not to remember and forgetting. When someone does something to you that hurts and they scar your life, I do not believe that it is possible for the human mind to totally erase that happening from their memory. And yet I have heard preachers say, if you can't forget it, you haven't forgiven it. Forgiving has nothing to do with the storage of an event in our memory. Forgiving and forgetting simply means I forgive you and I choose not to remember that against you. In Smead's book, he tells a story that so got a hold of my attention that I stopped reading right then and went and got Donna and said, you got to read this. The story strikes at the very core of what it means to forgive. It tests the concept of forgiveness at the very highest level of testing. The story goes like this. Simon Weisenthal tells of his own terrible crisis of forgiveness in a concentration camp and he forces us to tremble a little bit as he asks again whether forgiving is really possible. Weisenthal was a decent person, an architect by profession. He was caught in the Nazi clause, hoping for no more than to survive the Holocaust and hardly daring to hope for that much. We find him one afternoon in a concentration camp. Weisenthal has been assigned that day to clean rubbish out of a hospital that the Germans had improvised for wounded soldiers carried in from the Eastern Front. A nurse walked over to him out of nowhere, took his arm, ordered him to come with her, and led him upstairs along a row of stinking wounded to the side of a bed where a young soldier his head wrapped in yellow, pus-stained bandages, was dying. He was maybe 22. The soldier, whose name was Carl, reached out and grabbed Weisenthal's hand, clamped as it were as if he feared Weisenthal would run away. He told Weisenthal that he had to speak to a Jew. He had to confess the terrible things he had done so that he could be forgiven or he would not die in peace. What had he done? He was fighting in a Russian village where a few hundred Jewish people had been rounded up. His group was ordered to plant full cans of gasoline in a certain house. Then they marched about 200 people into the house, crammed them in until they could hardly move. Next, they threw grenades through the windows to set the house on fire, and the soldiers were ordered to shoot anyone who tried to jump out of a window. The young soldier recalled, behind the window of the second floor, I saw a man with a small child in his arms. His clothing was alight. By his side stood a woman, doubtless the mother of the child. With his free hand, the man covered the child's eyes, and then he jumped into the street. 
Seconds later, the mother followed. We shot. Oh, God, I shall never forget it. It haunts me, said the patient. The young man paused and then said, I know that what I have told you is terrible. I have longed to talk about it to a Jew and beg forgiveness from him. I know that what I am asking is almost too much, but without your answer, I cannot die in peace. Silence. The sun was high in heaven. God was somewhere. But here, two strangers were all by themselves, caught in the crisis of forgiveness. A member of the super race begged to be forgiven by a member of the condemned race. Weisenthal tells us what he did. I stood up and looked in his direction at his folded hands. At last I made up my mind. Without a word, I left the room. The German went to God unforgiven by man. Weisenthal survived the concentration camp, but he could not forget the SS trooper. He wondered, troubled for a long time, whether he should have forgiven the soldier. He told the story in his book, The Sunflower, and he ended it with an awful question for every reader. Here's the question. What would you have done? The result of that question was that people from all over the world wrote him letters. All of them had answers to how he should have handled the situation. But the question we have to ask as Christians, that is the highest test of forgiveness I have ever read in all of my life. What would you have done? Oh, by the way, there is one that is higher, and that is the forgiveness of God for our sins that nailed his son to the cross. And that forgiveness, if I read my Bible correctly, is the standard for our forgiveness. We are to forgive others as God, for Christ's sake, has what? Forgiven us. The highest standard of forgiveness for any of us is the forgiveness of God of our sin. And he tells us in his word that we can forgive as he forgave. My friends, I believe with all of my heart that the secret to an evil disposition is the Christian grace of forgiveness. Who is it that hurt you? Who is it that walked into your life one day in the past and destroyed everything you believed in? Who is the monster of your history that you are so angry at that you explode at everyone around you? As God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you, you must also forgive. And you will find, if you do, the testimony of hundreds and hundreds of people has been, I was chained to that part of my past until I let it go by saying, I forgive you. Forgiveness gives you freedom. Forgiveness makes it possible for you not to be provoked anymore. Forgiveness opens up your heart to the heart of the one who injured you. Well, forgiveness is that beautiful quality that you learn about when you study the Bible. 
And when you discover how much you have been forgiven, you learn how to forgive others. Tomorrow, we're going to take anger to another level. Tomorrow, we're going to talk about love's power over resentment. Resentment is anger gone underground, waiting to explode at any moment. We'll talk about that tomorrow right here on Turning Point. Let me tell you, we have a beautiful study guide for this series. It's actually 10 pages longer than the normal study guides because this is a longer series. It's beautifully designed. It has all the notes and outlines, a condensed version of every message, and a way for you to take this information and turn it into a small group study. Many people across the country are doing that right now. I'm excited that people are studying the Word of God and using biblical material to do it. So if you're in a small group and you're looking for some new curriculum, why not talk about love? I bet you you'll have people that want to come to that study. Talk about love, the power of love, the study of 1 Corinthians 13. Here's how you do it. Get study guides for all of your small group members. You get the study guide and the... CD package, and you listen and read before you come, then you're ready to facilitate a great study on love. Oh, by the way, don't forget to take your Bible, because it's right from the Word of God. And we'll see you next time here on this good station as we talk about resentment tomorrow on Turning Point. I'm David Jeremiah. Thank you so much for listening. message came to you from Shadow Mountain Community Church and Dr. David Jeremiah, the senior pastor. How is God blessing you through Turning Point? Let us know by writing to Turning Point for God of Canada, P.O. Box 18098, RPO, Sawasan, Delta, B.C., V4L2M4. Visiting our website at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio or calling 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of our 14-month calendar for 2024, focused on God's enduring faithfulness, the unchanging promises of God, yours for a gift of any amount. You can also download the free Turning Point mobile app to instantly access our content or search in your app store for the keywords Turning Point Ministries. Visit davidjeremiah.ca slash radio for details. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we continue the series, The Power of Love, on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. If you've been blessed by the ministry of Dr. David Jeremiah and Turning Point, we would love to offer you two free ways to stay connected. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash magazine for a subscription to our monthly Turning Points magazine. Each exclusive issue is filled with encouraging articles and daily devotionals to strengthen your spiritual walk. You can also sign up to receive our daily email devotional and be a part of our community of friends who receive daily encouragement delivered straight to their inbox from Dr. Jeremiah. Written in a thought-provoking manner, this concise yet profound daily devotional delivers the refreshment and focus you need as you go about in today's world. You can join the more than 600,000 monthly subscribers who are building their faith each month through these free resources. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca. That's davidjeremiah.ca. In 1943, IBM executives predicted there would be a worldwide market for, at most, five computers. 
And in 1959, IBM told Xerox executives they should expect to sell no more than 5,000 copy machines worldwide. With hindsight, we can safely say those predictions were slightly underestimated. But I'm not picking on IBM. After all, who of us knows the future? We don't know what will happen one hour from now, much less in 50 years. But we can know someone who does. It's not nearly as important to know the future as it is to know the Lord of the future. This is David Jeremiah, encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover the God who knows the future on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com and get your roadmap for life. Route 66, start your journey home today.